record. There we go. Welcome, everybody. Uh, great to see you all. If you can put your camera on, uh, it would be greatly appreciated, both for the speaker and for the audience. Um, welcome to uh, week 50 of the Chabura. We are very, very excited to have a very special guest tonight discussing a very important topic that uh, we, we've touched upon in many a shiur and many a discussion on our discussion group. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited to have a, a coherent and, 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 and thorough analysis of this topic. Uh, before I introduce our hacham tonight and the topic tonight, uh, just some quick housekeeping. As you all know, uh, membership mode begins July. So we are now three weeks away, please God, from starting membership mode. Uh, we've, as I said, we've got over 100 uh, Talmidim and Talmidot signed up around the world. We're very, very excited to begin that. So if you haven't signed up yet, please do visit thehabura.com forward slash join. Uh, any questions or queries you have, please do reach out. Um, uh, we'd be happy to help solve any challenges that you may come across uh, after exploring the very exciting membership program that's coming up. Other than that, uh, we've got a new series by Rabbi Dweck beginning on Haraf Cook. Uh, we'll be sharing that information in the discussion group. And our third journal will be out in the coming weeks as well. So stay tuned for that. Moving on to tonight's guest. It's Hakram uh, that I was recommended to reach out to uh, after having spoken with Raf Phillips, who kindly made the introduction. I believe Raf Phillips gave a, a, a talk um, at the Rav's Institute. And when he had mentioned that there is this Rav from this Maimonides Heritage Center, I thought, where do I know that that name, Maimonides Heritage Center from, and I realized so many of the articles that I had uh, read on Harambam when I was discovering Harambam uh, were written by those writing for Maimonides Heritage Center. So um, it was no surprise to me that when I got to meet with our guest speaker tonight, Rav Levy, uh, I was so, um, uh, I, I felt so much like I had connected with him and I felt that the Rav really understood what we're trying to do here at the Chabura. So I'm very honored that the Rav here is here tonight to share with us. Uh, Rabbi Yamin Levi is senior rabbi at the Iranian Jewish Center, Beth Hadassah Synagogue in Great Neck, New York. He is also the founder and director of the Maimonides Heritage Center. He is an academic writer, novelist, and author of numerous articles on Tanakh, Jewish thought, and Harambam. I am very, very honored. We are all very honored to have you here tonight, Hacham, uh, on a topic, as I mentioned, that we have all discussed before. Uh, but I don't think we've had a shiur that actually digs into the weeds of it all, which is what are the differences with regards to epistemological, legal, cultural differences between uh, Sepharad and Ashkenaz, and really focused on the three areas that I think have a lot of misconceptions, which are Minhag, Halakha, and Machshava. So, Hacham, uh, we're very happy to have you here. The stage is yours. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good afternoon and good evening. Uh, thank you, Sina, for the kind introduction. I'm going to pass on the small talk and get right to work. The title of the lecture is uh, Untying the Knots. Uh, the expression Untying the Knots comes from uh, an unlikely place. The writings of Rabbi Avraham ben Shemuel Abulafia. He lived in the 13th century. He's best known for his eccentric and fantastical mystical experiences, usually pegged as one of the famous Kabbalists of the Middle Ages. The reality is 
that he was probably bipolar. I don't mean that in a flippant way, and I don't say it in a derogatory fashion, but based on his biography and his writings, his hallucinations, he clearly was not all there. He did devote a good amount of his intellectual activity to interpreting the Moreh Nevuchim, Harambam's guide to the perplexed. His understanding of the Moreh is for another time. But a line that he uses often in his work on the Moreh is, one must untie the knots of the brain in order to know truth. That is going to be my modest goal this afternoon for me, evening for you. I want to begin the process of untying some of the mental and theological knots that often lead to confused practices, ideas, and notions. Let us begin from a broad strokes perspective. A few months ago, Rabbi Joseph Dweck gave a talk where he discussed the differences between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim. He invoked Yosef and Yehuda, and in his own words, he addressed the issue from broad strokes on a more worldview scale. My approach is much more detail-oriented. I'm interested in root issues. Is there an epistemological difference between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim that leads to their differences in practice or in legal adjudication. We will often get something like Ashkenazim are more machmir, stringent, while Sfaradim prefer a more mekil, lenient approach to Jewish law and Jewish life. This response is not only wrong, it is filled with apologetics. One of my favorite apologetics is it's harder to be lenient than it is to be stringent. And yet, tragically, we find this approach in the words of our very own Chachamim. Uh, Rabbi Chaim David Halevi uses the language that Sfaradim clung to the quality of Chesed, while the Ashkenazim clung to the quality of Gevurah. Unfortunately, neither of those qualities are legal principles or legislative terms. It's apologetics that only further the tying of knots in one's brain and in one's soul. Heschel, Abraham Heschel, not that I take what he says in this context seriously, but for your edification, he presents what I call his reverse apologetics. He, of course, was an academic, a, a, a well-known intellectual, and he cleverly frames the European approach as the romantic approach, while the Sephardic approach is the more classic approach. This is found in his book. It's called The Earth is the Lord's. Rabbi Ben-Sion Uziel, the first Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel in his introduction to his Teshuvot, Mishpete Uziel, touches upon what I believe is the correct direction, but unfortunately he too falls back on apologetics. He suggests that the difference between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim is their attitude towards 
minhag. But he doesn't finish the thought. So allow me to take his thought a little bit further and finish it. Defining minhag is not an easy and simple matter. The term minhag is used interchangeably in three very different contexts and can mean three different things. Minhag comprises of a formidable body of Torah Chachamim. The first are minhagim that emerge directly from halacha and are rooted in halachic practice. These minhagim may have emerged as a way of, of validating alternative legal positions. I'm going to give you an example. There's a universal custom among the various groups of the Jewish people to recite Hallel on Rosh Chodesh. The Gemara in Masechet Ta'anit lists the name of, uh, lists 18 days of the year where Hallel is recited. Rosh Chodesh is not on that list. The Gemara concludes that there is no obligation to recite Hallel on Rosh Chodesh because one works on that day. The Gemara then tells the story of Rav, who visited Bavel and saw the community reciting Chatzi Hallel on Rosh Chodesh. And so he accepted that custom. What emerged with regards to Hallel on Rosh Chodesh is that the Jewish people have accepted the practice of Hallel on Rosh Chodesh as a way of expressing the unique sanctity of the day. The very practice validates that alternative position of Bavel. Hallel is therefore considered an example of a minhag ratified by Chazal as a way of validating an alternative tradition. The Rishonim then discuss whether or not a beracha should be recited on the Hallel of Rosh Chodesh. Harambam and others argue that since the entire recitation is based on minhag, no beracha should be recited. Rabbeinu Tam and the Rosh argue that since it is an important minhag, a bracha should be recited. As a result of this machloket, three minhagim have emerged. Sfaradim do not recite a bracha on Hallel of Rosh Chodesh in accordance to Harambam's ruling and subsequent Sephardic codifiers. Ashkenazim recite a bracha on Hallel of Rosh Chodesh in accordance with the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam and Rosh. Note that they created a new category of law, important minhag. Sephardic Jews of North Africa assumed a compromised position. Only the Chazan recites the bracha and the community respond with amen. So this first type of minhag, it's minhag that is rooted in Halakha. There's a second type of minhag. Minhagim that are not rooted in halakha, but are established as practice and have authority by virtue of the fact that the people of Israel have embraced that practice. An example of this is 
the Talmud discusses the fast days observed in commemoration of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. The Gemara in Masechet Rosh Hashanah Adav Yod Chet Amud Bet reports as follows. It was Rav Papa who asserted that during times of oppression, the fast days must be observed. During times of peace, the fast days are turned into days of celebration. And when it is neither times of oppression nor times of peace, one can choose to fast or to not fast. So here's a good example of Minhag adopted by the entire Jewish people. The Jewish people have taken upon themselves the observance of these fast days, and no individual has the option to do otherwise. Every code of Jewish law, including the Mishneh Torah of Harambam, codifies the four fast days associated with the Beit HaMikdash as Halacha. These fast days are indeed considered Halacha, but they are neither biblical nor rabbinic. They're not the Oraita or the Rabbanan. They are minhag, and they can therefore be considered less critical, but not less authoritative. These two categories of minhag have been ratified by the Sanhedrin. Regarding these two types of minhag, Harambam writes in Hilchot Mamrim, and I want to read to you from Hilchot Mamrim at the beginning of Hilchot Mamrim, Harambam says, Beit Din the Supreme Court of Israel that rests in Yerushalayim. That is the source of Torah Shebaal Peh. And he continues, They may rule, legislate, laws that are pertinent to that very moment that are called siag la Torah or gezerah and takana. These are different kinds of decrees, not for today's discussion, and min ha-got. Kol echad ve'echad me'elu ha-shloshad v'rim mitzvat lahem. We have an obligation to follow the ruling of the Sanhedrin regarding these matters. If you transgress, you've transgressed a lotase of the Torah, lotasur of the Sanhedrin. There's a third type of minhag. The third type of minhag emerges locally, within a community, within a family, and is more likely than not based on local culture, customs, of the society around them. Most of the minhagim associated with marriage or with life cycle events fall into this category. The text of the Ketubah, for example, um, is a minhag. The Syrian community in Brooklyn have a clause that the husband can divorce the wife if she doesn't bring children within 10 years. The Ashkenazim have a custom that the bride encircles the groom seven times under the chuppah, or a groom has to wear a raincoat or not wearing a raincoat under the chuppah. These are strictly 
minhag of this category. Only those who share that tradition observe those minhagim. And if they choose not to observe it, there is no halachic consequences. Like halacha, the first two types of minhag expose Judaism's core values. This is a very important point. The nature of law and any legal system represents the values of the society. The third category of minhag reflects the community's fears and possibly aspirations. The third type of minhag speaks to how a community dresses a particular life cycle event or navigates moments of joy or sadness, often emulating local culture. Herein lies the most dramatic difference between Andalus and Europe. European Jewry makes no or very little distinction between the three types of minhag. For the Lithuanian and Hasidic worlds, the third type of minhag has the same authority as the first two types of minhag. I am part of a worldwide rabbinic WhatsApp group, and it includes Sephardic and Ashkenaz rabbis. And I see how my colleagues, the Ashkenazim, are trapped in this world where they can't distinguish between minhag and halacha. Recently, one of my colleagues asked the group about the color of the ink on a ketubah. Halakha states the ink must be permanent, but because the minhag has been to write it in black ink does not make it halakha. Andalusian jury understood the difference in legal implications and authority. Let me give you an example from an article I wrote and that was published um, uh, by Rabbi Mark Angel in his uh, journal called uh, uh, I forget what it's called right now. The article is called A Comparative Study of Sephardic and Ashkenazic Wedding Ceremony. And there are many examples. Here is one. The halacha is that Kinyan Kiddushin is performed with Shaveh Peruta. Sephardim, to this day, in many pure Sephardic communities, use a coin, or a piece of jewelry, something of worth and of beauty appropriate for a chupah. In the Ashkenaz world, kiddushin can only take place with a tabat, a ring. Not only that, the ring has to be round. It must be yellow gold. It must be placed on the forefinger of the bride's right hand. And there's a whole body of literature as to why this must be so and what it symbolizes. Everything from beautiful ideas, from Gan Eden to Mahmad Har Sinai, what emerges or what emerged as a cultural minhag turned into a halacha with significant authority. I am here using a non-controversial example, and I don't want to upset anyone, but read my article 
for more examples that have ruffled the feathers of many of my Ashkenaz uh, friends and colleagues. So we need to answer, how did this happen? Why does European Jewry view culturally and locally born minhagim as universal and authoritative? And herein lies, it's very important to understand the historic difference between Sepharad and Ashkenaz. And I, I trust all of you know this, and I apologize if it's repetitive, but it's important to reiterate and iterate uh, uh, to fully understand. The term Sepharadi has nothing to do with origins from Spain. Rabbi Sadia Gaon was referred to as Hasfaradi, and yet he never stepped foot in Spain. He was born in Egypt, lived in Israel, and died in Iraq, Bavel. To be clear, Sepharadim do not necessarily come from Spain. They also come from other lands. For our purposes, a more accurate definition of Sepharadi is a Jew whose diaspora experience took place in a non-Christian society post the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, 68 AD. While Ashkenaz jury, on the other hand, <coughs> includes all of jury whose diaspora experience took place in Christian lands. This working definition explains the Sfaradi attribution to all the Jews from Syria, Persia, Yemen, Egypt, and Libya, none of whose ancestors necessarily originated from Spain. It does get confusing, however, because Sephardic Jewry does include Jews whose ancestors emerged from northern Christian Spain, who may indeed share some common customs, as well as land of origin, but whose philosophic underpinnings are much more aligned epistemologically with Ashkenaz jury. For example, one cannot place Ramban, Nachmanides, and Harambam, Maimonides, in the same school of philosophical thought. Nachmanides believed in spirits and ghosts. He believed in magic and communicating with the dead. He says so unapologetically. While Maimonides Harambam thought that they were a figment of people's imagination. According to Harambam, those views were nonsense. Nachmanides and Maimonides both emerge from Spain, but are heir to two vastly different philosophic traditions. Nachmanides' creative output is influenced by medieval Christian theology, authoritarianism, and the mysticism of northern Spanish Franco-German schools with little or no access to the philosophical and scientific works 
of the day. On the other hand, Harambam's creative and philosophic output is influenced by early medieval Islam's openness to Greek philosophy and sciences from Southern Spain. Additionally, one must note that the Jewish community of Northern Spain was further influenced to a certain extent by the presence and rulings of the great rabbi Asher ben Yechiel, who lived between 1250 and 1330, also known as Rosh. He emigrated to Spain from Germany around 1286 due to the persecutions of Jews in those parts of Europe. His presence was so commanding that his rulings were considered authoritative in Castile and in Toledo for over a dozen years. So just allow me to frame this just a little bit further. Following the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash around 68 AD, and certainly after the failed rebellion of Bar Kokhva around 135 AD, the Jewish settlements in Israel began dispersing. Many joined their co-religionists in Iraq, Babel, Persia, Egypt, and North Africa, while a significant sector of the Jewish population emigrated to Italy and Europe. Judaism at this point ceased being a national religion tied to a land. Instead, both Jewry and Judaism became synonymous with the study of Torah, with the observance of Jewish law and the development of minhag. The study of Torah flourished in Christian Europe, but it was an environment that was limited, an environment that limited their practitioners' access to secular texts to philosophy and science. And this resulted in Torah scholars becoming experts in rabbinic texts, but ignorant of Tanakh, Hebrew grammar, literature, secular philosophy, and certainly sciences. In its place, Ashkenaz jury developed what might be a myopic conception of Jewish thought influenced by the spiritual mysticism of their environment with the expected trappings of superstition, demonology, necromancy, and magic. This attitude, surprisingly, survived the Middle Ages right through modern day rabbinic rulings of Ashkenaz authorities. And I take, for example, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, uh, who died in 1986 of blessed memory. He was raised and trained in Eastern Europe, emigrated to New York, and continues to be recognized as the rabbinic authority of modern day Ashkenaz Jewry. For Rabbi Feinstein, the study of secular subjects is at best a concession to the laws of the host country. 
He forbids the study of scientific texts that deny God created the world. A teacher of science rules Rabbi Feinstein must rip the pages out of the textbook. If you want to take the source, it's Igrot Moshe, Yored De'ah, volume three, uh, Siman 73. In traditional Ashkenaz schools, one is forbidden to read Greek philosophy, which Rabbi Feinstein, uh, in a different teshuvah, considered foolish and empty. In the early medieval period in Andalusia, Sephardic Jews had access to the latest advances in the study of science and logic, as well as access to translations of Greek philosophy. As I said, they mastered Hebrew grammar as their Islamic counterparts mastered Arabic grammar. The creative output of the golden age of Spain produced works in biblical grammar, biblical exegesis, works in philosophy, logic, medicine, and codes of Jewish law organized and accessible to the non-expert. And this philosophy, this approach has survived the Middle Ages right through today. For example, Rabbi Chaim David Halevi, who died around 1996, had a vastly different attitude to secular studies than did Rabbi Feinstein, including Greek philosophy. Rabbi Halevi permitted the study of secular studies even on Shabbat to prepare for exams if it was for the sake of heaven, l'shem shamayim. And so you can look it up in uh, Asei Lecharav, volume one, uh, number 36, Teshuvah number 36. And so the Maimonidean controversy, which I encourage all of you to read about and, 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 and understand, it took place uh, at the end of the 12th century into the 13th century and peaked with the infamous ban on the study of Maimonides' philosophic works, is an example of a clash between two models of religious thinking, one developed in Moorish Spain and the other in Christendom. The Maimonidean tradition was heir to a pluralistic uh, worldview developed in Andalus and in Islamic lands, while the anti-Maimonidean movement emerged in the authoritarian societies of France, Germany, and Christian Spain. Chacham Faor Zichronoli argues that a primary element in uh, the conflict between the Maimonideans and their opposition was a fundamental principle about religion and Jewish law. The Sephardic communities adopted the Gaonic premise that Judaism is driven by a legal system based on an immutable covenant with God and based on democratic principles. 
while European jury introduced an element of fervor and zeal that at times supersedes the legal principles set forth by halacha. <coughs> and so what you have is this prevailing value that characterizes Ashkenaz European attitudes towards Jewish law, which is the idea that piety supersedes halacha and is the noblest expression of Jewish practice. I'm not criticizing, I want this to be very clear, but that is the Ashkenaz uh, approach. Read the commentaries on the Pesukim, Kedoshim Tiyu, Kikadosh Ani Hashem. And compare the differences in terms of Andalusian, Sephardic interpretation of that Pasuk versus European Ashkenaz. So it is no surprise that European Jewry regarded all practices performed by their rabbinic um, authorities as canonical and immutable. This is why they do not and cannot distinguish between the three kinds of minhag. Sephardic jury of old Sepharad operated based on legal principles and insisted on distinguishing between um, different levels of minhag. The most tragic consequence of this divide is if you can just hold one second Someone needs my attention. Hold on one second, please. I apologize about that. Okay. Um, so I'm sorry. What I, what I want to say is as follows. The most tragic consequence of this divide is, believe it or not, the end result of the Shulchan Aruch of Rabbi Yosef Karo. Bear with me, stay with me. What, am I, what I am about to say is not controversial, it is fact. Rabbi Yosef Karo was a genius. His command of Torah Balpe was unparalleled. Karo went public with his grand ambition after the publication of the Bet Yosef. In his introduction of the Bet Yosef, Rabbi Karo wrote that his goal is to create a law for all of Jewry. And he's going to take the three pillars of his time, Alfasi, Rosh, and Harambam and he's going to democratically choose the halakha based on these three, according to the majority rule. Cairo employed democratic principles in legislation, something he believed naively would resonate with all jury and all rabbinic authorities. Unfortunately and tragically, it did not. 
Ashkenaz jury did not employ democratic principles in legislative matters. Rather, they ruled authoritatively, hierarchically. And so it's no surprise that Rabbi Moshe Iserlis, better known as the Ramah or Ramah, who was born in Krakow in the 16th century, he assumed his rabbinic leadership role as head of the community around the time that Rabbi Yosef Cairo was completing his Bet Yosef and Shulchan Aruch. And despite the broad sources Rabbi Cairo utilized to cast a net over the European Jewish community's traditions, Ramah published glosses, has sagot, on Cairo's Shulchan Aruch. Chacham Faor of blessed memory used to refer to these hasagot as violence, thereby supplanting Karo's rulings with Ashkenaz jury's customs and rulings. Ra the Ramah deprived Rabbi Yosef Karo's erv of its universal authoritative quality and applicability. I want to read to you what the Ramah wrote in his uh, in what the Ramah wrote. Let me see if I can find it. What the Ramah wrote in his introduction to his glosses. Ramah says as follows. I viewed all his referring to Cairo's statements in the Shulchan Aruch as having been presented as though they were given by Moses at divine command so that students would come and drink his words without challenging them. Therefore, I decided that at those places where Cairo's statements do not seem to me to be correct, I would write down next to each statement the opinion of the acharonim in order to make students aware of every instance of his statement his statements are where his statements are disputed without consideration to rabbi caro's intended goals the rama undid a man's life's work. As a result, the Shulchan Aruch is not a pure Sephardic legal code. You understand what I'm saying, correct? The Shulchan Aruch codified the Halakha, Yosef Karo codified the Halakha in accordance to three opinions. It's not a pure Sephardic halacha anymore. This is the great tragedy of the Shulchan Aruch. And so we need to untie this knot in our brains. Years ago, I asked Chacham Ovadia Yosef about this. And his response was, he smacked me in the cheek a few times like he was known to do. And he says to me, Mi yodea. Uh, 
he would say to me, Mi yodea, uh, machshavo, uh, machshavo who knows what uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants of us. And so uh, Rama achieved notoriety by glossing over Karo's works. Um, let's close with a halakhic example and then we'll <coughs> take some questions and hopefully I'll be able to answer. There's a principle in halakha, it's called over la'asiyatan. The Gemara Masechet Pesachim and in other places states that all berachot recited over a mitzvah must be recited before over the performance, le'asiyatan of the mitzvah. There's no machloket in this regard in the Bavli. The Talmud Yerushalmi in Masechet Berachot preserves a minority opinion of Rav Huna and of Shemuel that a Beracha must be recited during the performance of a mitzvah, Bisha'at Asiyatan. The Geonim universally accepted the majority opinion that all Berachot, especially Birkota Mitzvah, must be recited before the performance of the action. According to Rab Chofni Gaon, there are seven types of Brachot. Harambam narrows the categories of uh, Berachot to three Birkat Mitzvah, Birkat Neenin, and Birkat Hoda'a. And according to Harambam, the principle of Over Siyatan applies to all three types of berachot. What appears to be exceptions are not really exceptions. For example, in chapter 11 of Hilchot Berachot, uh, Harambam rules that ideally one should recite the beracha on tefillin before putting on the tefillin, but uh, if you did not, you can recite the beracha anytime while the tefillin is on. This is not an exception to the rule of over siyatan. This is, brings in another rule in its place. But in the 12th century, a chacham, Rabbi Zechariah HaLevi from Girona, also known as Baal HaMaor, in the yeshiva world, the Baal HaMaor. Um, do you guys know where Girona is? Girona is very much northern Spain. It's on the border of uh, Spain and southern France. The Baal HaMaor writes where he completely disregards the majority ruling of the Bavli and rules like the minority opinion found in the Yerushalmi. Now, truthfully, this is a shocking idea. But what ends up happening is that the schools of Northern Spain and Ashkenaz create this whole literature to explain why the Baal HaMaor is correct. But he's not. 
The Bavli is very, very clear. That's why I chose this example. The Bavli is clear. The conclusion of the Bavli is clear that there is such a principle as over lasiatan. The consequences of this balha maor have changed and impacted halacha in significant ways. Harambam, in a strong polemic against the uh, this attitude, he writes in Hilchot um, Tefila, chapter seven. He's discussing the Birkot Hashachar, the brachot we make every morning. Shemona Israel Berachot Elu Ein Lahen Seder. Those 18 blessings we make in the morning, they don't have any particular order, says. Ela Mevarech Kolechat Mehen Al Davar Shabracha Bishvilo Bishato. One must recite each blessing prior to the very action that he is uh, uh, about to do, if not an, an action or the experience that he has. If you hear uh, the rooster, you say, uh, uh, you're going to put on your hat, that's what Harambam says. He's very clear. In Halacha 9, and I'm reading out of my Kapach, Rambam edition. If you look behind you, I have about five different editions of Harambam in my library. Kapach, of course, is my favorite to go to. Harambam writes in very unusual that he that he that he uses the Mishneh Torah for this purpose. He says that. The tradition has become popular in our towns that people recite these blessings in the synagogue one after the other, whether they're obligated on these blessings or not. He says this is a mistake. One should not do this. One should not recite a blessing if he's not obligated to recite the blessing. And he certainly should not all recite a blessing once he's already performed the mitzvah. This is a transgression of it's uh, number two of the Ten Commandments. Regarding Netilat Yadayim, this is another place where this Baal uh, HaMaor has had significant uh, impact. The Shulchan Aruch, Harambam in chapter 6 of Yilchot Brachot, and har- the Shulchan Aruch codifies it as such, one must recite a bracha of Netilat Yadayim prior to the washing of the hands. The Ramah writes over there in the Shulchan Aruch that no, in Ashkenaz we do it after. There's a lot of literature as to if it's prior to the drying of the hands, or after the drying of the hands, or while the drying of the hands. Clearly, again, there's a halacha over la siyatan. This impacts uh, the bracha women make at the mikveh. Sephardic women, ideally, and unfortunately many do not know this, ideally should make their bracha 
before they go into the water. They are hopefully robed. They make the bracha and then enter the water. In, again, the Ramah and in Ashkenaz literature, they say no. The woman first enters the water and then makes the bracha. <coughs> the uh, best known difference is Hadlakat Neirot Shabbat, again, where um, a Sephardic woman should ideally follow the halacha according to Sephardic tradition. You make the bracha and then you light Neirot Shabbat as opposed to the way the Ramah suggests, first you light and then you make the bracha. Now, of course, in every one of these instances, there's a great deal of literature as to why they do it this way. I remember when uh, I was uh, saying Kaddish for my father, Zichron Bracha, and I would, uh, at the time, I would travel a lot and I would end up in a uh, Ashkenaz Minyan, they would ask me to do Shacharit, I refused to do Birkot HaShachar out loud for everybody. Now, the truth is I converted many good Ashkenaz rabbis after we had our conversation and discussion as to why I refused to do it. Um, but I heard all kinds of reasons as to why it's done that way. Neirot Shabbat, many reasons. You know, when you make the bracha, you've accepted Shabbat, that's not the case, that's not true. But all those reasons notwithstanding, this is a classic example of um, Sephardic jury really following a legal principle that is clearly stated in the Talmud. And um, while European jury uh, allowing itself and permitting its chachamim to deviate from those principles for whatever reasons. Um, uh, before I take questions, I do want to say the following. Uh, I, I appreciate your attention. It's been, uh, my God, I, I've been talking for a very long time. Um, I do want to say the following. Those of you that are in this camp that really want to uh, uh, learn more about the roots of our traditions and the nature of our Sephardic traditions and um, uh, really come to, you know, uh, better grasp it. Uh, it. It's important that we always remain precise and not permit ourselves to be sloppy in how we present material and how we observe uh, our, our traditions. Um, and uh, the worst thing we can do is, uh, you know, be out there and, and, and put things out there that really aren't grounded in, in, in uh, uh, or based in, 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 in halakha and, uh, uh, and in substance. And so it's important that uh, we, you know, we, 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 we study together, we learn together, we learn from each other to really get to the root and understand our, our tradition. I open the floor for questions. Um, uh, Sina, would you like to uh, Thank take the yeah. First of all, I wish you would see the comments I'm getting. Um, it's so, so uh, inspiring, so fascinating. Thank you so much for everything you've shared. 
Um, where are the questions? Uh, we've had a quite a few interesting dialogues in the chat. Uh, if anybody wants to unmute, uh, please do put, uh, well, you don't need to put your hands up. That's a little bit too organized for a Safari Khabara. Just feel free to unmute and ask your question. Um, I'm looking at some of these comments. Can someone please share the article in the chat? Okay, good. Yes, that's it. Jewish ideas. Thank you. Uh, they actually get it. With all due respect. Ah, uh, here's a question. The fact that Rama felt the need to add his gloss in the first place demonstrates the lack of universal universality of Rav Karo's work uh, in the first place, in that it ignored the halakhic views and traditions in Ashkenaz. I had so, briefly responded to that to say that's because Ashkenaz represented only 30% of world Jewry at the time, but uh, I'm sure the Hakam has a more accurate answer. No, that, that's, that's, that, that's the answer. It just didn't take into consideration what, Chacham, what, what uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo was intending to do. And um, uh, yeah, that, that's the right answer. Uh, if the Ramah uh, wanted to put out his own code of Jewish law, he should have done so. Uh, uh, yeah, does anybody, if anybody wants to add to that, I mean. Uh, yeah, sorry, can I just come in on that if that's okay? Sure. Um, sure. I Who just, is uh, it's Jack, I'm hiding behind a blank screen. Okay. <laughs> so one of the, uh, very much enjoying the, the, the shiur, I think that, um, you could make the counter argument that if the Ramah had written his own work, I'm, I'm stealing a point uh, from Zev, but also one I heard in Yeshiva multiple times, if the Ramah had written his own work, that would have separated, uh, that would afford a total separation between the Ashkenazi and, and Sephardic world. But at least now, everyone's broadly on the same metaphorical prayer book. And so there's so, an argument to be had that the Ramah promoted unity. So let me, let me respond to that. As a uh, Sephardic Jew, uh, the Shulchan Aruch created a work that was uh, uh, pariv. It wasn't pure Sephardic because his goal was to include Ashkenaz Jewry. So the Ramah, by glossing, created a work for the Ashkenazim, which further divided <laughs> the community. And the Sephardim now are left with a work that is not purely Sephardic. And that's where the term tragedy comes in. If I'm saying to you, I, I disagree that now, now we're all revolving around the same um, uh, text. I would say, if you ask me, I try to posek halacha as much as I can based on Harambam and the Geonim. And the and and the Rimigash and Alfasi, if if I'm interested in purely Sephardic tradition. Um, so yeah, just very briefly. Firstly, on a personal level, I very much uh, I very much like the approach you just outlined. I just um, I'm just not convinced by the argument because the the remark clearly felt that the Ashkenazi and he writes this very clearly in his introduction that it's very nice he laid this table but he didn't invite us so I'm gonna have to put out my 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 tablecloth so we can at least take part the Rosh is not a sufficient representation of the Ashkenazi halachic history and, and the Sarah. well the Rosh was the luminary of Ashkenaz jury at that time and the point I don't know you I don't know if you know a little bit of the history of Rabbi Yosef Karo he had he had messianic 
and you know visions. He wanted to establish a Sanhedrin. Uh, he imagined a unified Jewish people. That was this was part of his grand plan and grand scheme. Um, and Ashkenaz jury was invited to the table. That was the whole point of the work. There was no greater scholar than Rabbi Yosef Karo in that generation. No okay. way. I mean, I'm sure, we, I'm sure we could go on, but I'll, I'll leave it right. to someone right. else's kitchen. Thank you so much, Jack. And thank you, Rob. Uh, any other questions? I'd like to ask you, this is Alan Harris. Uh, it's a bit of a digression, but um, you mentioned uh, the uh, issue of uh, Halel on Rosh Chodesh and that Halel was uh, restricted. But how come we were able to add the Halel for uh, Yom Asmaut? Oh, excellent question. Excellent question. So uh, the Halel of Yom Asmaut, um is a day of uh, uh, celebration for the Jewish people. Um, and uh, Hallel is, is a prayer that is, uh, shouldn't be used uh, you know, easily. It has to really be used at a time that is significant and meaningful. And the Chachamim, the rabbis of uh, the generation felt that it's an appropriate time to say Hallel. The great, great rabbis, the uh, chief rabbis of Israel and of diaspora uh, who believed in the Zionist uh, miracle uh, instituted Hallel and we accept it as a people, those who embrace it. Um, I don't say a bracha on Yom Atzmaud Hallel, but I definitely say Hallel on it. No, 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 and, and I appreciate that. And that's really what I was getting at is that people like yourself do not say the bracha because I gather they don't feel, if I'm correct, entirely comfortable because we're overriding a principle, a very strong principle that there are a limited number of circumstances where you can say halal. Am I correct? Well, I, I, the, the issue of bracha is different than the limited circumstance when we can say halal. Bracha levatala is a very serious transgression. It's the a transgression of one of the Ten Commandments. And so we're very, very careful when uh, we institute a bracha on anything, a blessing on anything. Um, but uh, the uh, recitation of Hallel on Yom Ha'atzma'ut is a decision that the rabbis, leaders of our generation have made, and we should all participate in that. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the answer, Rob. Thank you. Uh, have you got a few more minutes for a few more questions, Ross? Sure, 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 sure. sure. Great. Uh, please do feel free to unmute. Any more questions? Uh, let me see some more of these comments. Um, totally yeah, who's unmuted? I just unmuted. Hi, so it's, it's Paul the Shrug of Hi. Want to see me? Hi. Yeah, yeah so Hi. I'm, a, I'm an Ashkenazi, brought up Ashkenazi governing in a, a Sephardi minion. And um, I feel at home there. Um, what about the idea that um, culturally speaking, that can influence the way we express ourselves spiritually? I feel I'm amongst um, people who I share a neshama with because of the hashkafa, their outlook. But the fact that I might be reading slightly different versions from the art scroll Siddha rather than the the Gibraltarian said it doesn't seem to bother me. It's just because I'm amongst the people who who I share um, 
share um, a cultural affiliation to for reasons I don't quite understand. And that's probably because I might, in my own way, um, have got the mimetic um, learning from families because I see them in hugging with, of, say, my late father, who had um, ways of uh, expressing Hachnasa or him, which I specifically have experienced amongst the Sephardi community. So the question is, that transmission of minhag, so to speak, is also something that's cultural and uh, plays an important part in how one affiliates and identifies with Yahweh. A hundred percent correct. A hundred percent correct. I was, as I was trying to say earlier, law, um, law reflects values. Uh, custom reflects the culture. And um, uh, you know, embracing culture and unique features of a culture is beautiful. Uh, and it's certainly a, a, a venue to uh, spiritual uh, growth and, 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 and uh, 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 you know, embracing and, and, and understanding Judaism, 100%. I, I agree with that 100%. Thank you for that comment. I just want to add that the problem with law is it has no texture, it's, it's words on paper, and it's very prescriptive. And to have a meta experience about the culture, more anthropological approach, is really the, the, the avenue of uh, the difference between reading the, reading the textbook and, living, and living, living life. It's just a different way of engaging. Uh, and we are, so, we are so primed in reverting to the text because we've lost We've lost, we've lost that link, but we can rediscover it in the here and now just by being amongst people who live it rather than just saying, well, what does the law say? And well, I'm only going to do that. And I find that I find that very, very limiting. And that's what it is. I don't disagree with you. I, I invite you to read uh, an article written by Professor Chaim Soloveitchik. Um, uh, and uh, he discusses that very issue. The issue, the the, um, the 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 historical movement from you know you know experiencing Judaism, uh, you know, and, and learning Judaism from how our parents and grandparents did it to the you know the printing press and and an art scroll which teaches us Judaism from a, a written text, and it's two very different experiences. Um, but thank you. Yes, that's a good point. Um, thank you very much. Ask one quick, quick question. Yes. Avi, go ahead. Thank you very much. Um, it's following up on, on we were talking about the Rosh and whether the Ashkenaz were, were represented fairly. Um, to what extent, though, because as we know, obviously the Rosh moved to Toledo um, and he was influenced by sort of the prevailing. Um, customs and the, or, or whatever it was that, that the Hashkafa was there before him and um, to what extent was he influenced by that and and you know is there a claim there to say that you know he, he left sort of Ashkenaz and uh, the tour and and his descendants sort of were influenced by the Sepharadim so it was not a, 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 um, a fair representation of the Ashkenaz. Excellent question. Are you any relation to Benito Garzon? No. I'm not. No, you know but I know is. who he is. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So um, 
I would say as follows. I don't think the Rosh was influenced, but his son, Rabbi Yaakov ben Harosh, the author of the tour, if read carefully and studied carefully, you see this tension between growing up with your father, who is, you know, European in a society that is Sephardic. And there are some gems. And, you know, if, if I had time and if uh, I was younger, that would be a work that I would do, is find those gems in the Tur Shulchan Aruch, the son of the Rosh, where you see the influence of the Sephardic culture and society around him being pulled with the traditions that his father was heir to. Uh, but I don't believe the Rosh was in any way influenced by the society he lived in. In fact, um, I invite you to read uh, Chacham Faur's uh, article on uh, uh, the uh, two schools of thought. Uh, Aaron, what's it called? If you can put it on the... Uh... Two Jewish modes of spirituality, yeah. I think. Yeah, correct. Two modes of spirituality, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Two Jews. And the, the Rosh was not, was not influenced. He... he, he, he you know, we imagine the Rosh as very authoritarian in terms of his thinking and his rulings. Uh, definitely when it came to uh, uh, traditions, of European traditions. And Rav, we actually had Professor Eric Lowry a couple of weeks ago to come and explain the reception of Rashi's commentary in Safarad. And he had mentioned that the tour, as you mentioned, Rosh's son, um, that tension was there in his writings that you described where he said that uh, he saw how the Safaradim were so passionate about studying Mikra. Absolutely. And he said, I wish we could take that to Ashkenaz, he said, where they had this, Mikra played such a uh, primary role in, yes. for our yeah. learning. That's just one example, that, that one of the gems, if you like. I'm familiar um, with that. I, I believe the Rosh, in his, in his will to his sons, or, um, he speaks about, like, we should do like the Sefaradim, that they, they um, care so much about grammar. Um, and that's one of the messages that... That's like a hint that there must, there may have been some influence, but maybe that was at the end of his life, or or maybe that didn't come into the halakha. That, that was. Um, I'm not familiar yeah. with that. All I remember from the the interaction between Rosh and Safarad is when he arrived and said, "Thank God I do not have their worldly knowledge," because <laughs> I do believe right. that Rosh was quite taken aback by how worldly the Safaradim were with regards to secular knowledge. So right. I think the tension was quite there when the Hacham arrived in northern in northern Spain. Right. Right. Um, uh, good, good. Right. Any other questions? Excuse me, could hey, I just ask... Alan, go ahead. Yeah, if I could just ask one question, because the Rambam is such a towering figure, respected quasi-universally, whether it's by the Brisker, you talked about Chaim Soloveitchik and, and let alone the Rav, yet... The, there's an impression that the Ashkenazi basically are the ones of the calling the shots when the, 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 the greatest authorities, be it halachic or Talmudic, recognize the supremacy of, uh, of the Rambam. And it's kind of a dichotomy there that I find very difficult to reconcile. As we all do, my good friend, Alan. It's very and, I, and I'm an Ashkenaz. And I'm an Ashkenaz. Very I'm actually a Litvak. You I'm cannot. There's no. There's no yeshiva in the world that doesn't study Harambam's Mishneh Torah. 
but most yeshivot don't open his more nevuchim. It's hard to reconcile. Hard to reconcile. Um, yeah. I got to go. have to leave it at that in the interest you know, of time. <laughs> one of the root, you know, a root issue, which I was uh, engaged in this past week in emails with uh, with with uh, with a with a scholar was um, how uh, European jury versus uh, uh, Sephardic jury regarded the close of the Talmud and how they related to the close of the Talmud. This is a very, very important issue, one that requires uh, an entire uh, discussion, but that is another root issue that's very, very important and, and, and probably uh, uh, explains the parting of ways uh, between Sephardic and, uh, and uh, Sephardic jury and, and Ashkenaz jury. Rav, thank you so, <laughs> so much. Um, we need to put in dates for you to come back. Be because my pleasure. You've, uh, you've, you've built a real fan base here at the Chabura, and uh, we really, really honor, we really, really are, you know, honored to, to, to be able to have Hacham share these ideas with us. Um, so thank you on behalf thank of everybody you here. For your thank you. And I hope, I hope uh, it was not a waste of anybody's time. Uh, no, not at all. I'm looking forward to the review. Rav, where can people catch your work, your uh, organization, etc., okay. etc.? Et Please do share. So I, I, I invite everybody, if you want to email questions, I try to respond to everybody who emails me, usually not on the same day. My email is yaminlevy at gmail.com. Um, I invite you to visit uh, our website. There's, there's a video, YouTube videos, as well as I think my written material is on the website, um, mhcny.org, Maimonides Heritage Center. Um, and um, uh, I invite you all to, 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 to visit it and stay in yeah. touch. Uh, we will thank be. You. Thank you very much, Rav. Thank you so much. You. Everybody, good day, good night, wherever you are. Uh, Rav, is there anything else you'd like to add? I, I want to read through the comments before you close me out. So, no uh, problem. Okay. So I'll just exit out as soon as I finish. That sounds all good. Right? I'll, I'll yeah. kick everybody else out. Good night, everybody. <laughs>